0: Let us pray, Almighty and most gracious Father, draw near once more as always to us who need your help, to us who are needy. Refresh us, renew us, restore us by your goodness, by your favor upon us, that we would know you more deeply, that we would grow in our faith and our trust that you would help us in our unbelief and ever increase our faith and guide us that we might love Jesus in all that we do and show him by our actions and our words. All this we do ask through that very same Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Years and years ago, before I looked like this, I was wandering down a toy aisle at Walmart. At that time, it was about 20 years ago or so, I had wild multicolored hair, something like 13 piercings across my face, baggy jeans, a raver shirt, wallet chains hanging down to my knee. I was a sight to behold, and I certainly looked the part of a partier then, even though I'd had never actually been to a party I just like dressing like that and looking cool but as I was wandering down that aisle looking at random transformers probably checking to see which ones were in 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 the on the shelf and seeing what else there was I noticed out of the corner of my eye this older gentleman kinda glancing over at me every once in a while I mean I didn't think much about it he was looking at toys probably for his grandkids and I was looking at toys just for myself and he just kind of kept glancing over, and as we kind of moved back and forth on the aisle, he interrupted me and asked me a question. He said, I was wondering, do you know about Jesus? For me, knowing the way that I looked, I wasn't surprised that someone would ask that question of me. Though the reality was, I had become a believer again. I had returned to my faith that I had once abandoned. And so I was quick to respond, it's like, yes. I do know Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he died for my sins on the cross, that he was raised three days later, that he is in heaven and that he will return one day and bring me into the resurrection with him by faith. And the man smiled and just got a twinkle in his eyes like, I'm so glad you do know Jesus. He's like, and then he just walked off. He's like, I'm glad that you know Jesus. And the reason I didn't get upset was because when he asked that question, do you know about Jesus? I didn't feel like he was. Picking me out of the crowd randomly because I didn't look like a Christian. The tone of his voice, the demeanor that he put forward, the love in his own voice told me that he asked everyone that question that he encounters. Every stranger that he knows, if he finds that there's a moment that he can bump into them and talk to them, he will ask them, do you know about Jesus? Have you heard about this savior of the world? And it didn't matter what they looked like. He would ask them. I could have been wearing a suit and tie that day and he would have asked me that same question. Because he was enamored with Jesus, and he wants others to know about them. And so for 20 years I've thought about that and could never be upset at that old man, at that old gentleman asking me, do you know about Jesus? Because he did not make any distinctions between men. He knew that all men needed to hear about Jesus. He knew that all men needed to know about this Lord of glory, this one who redeems the world from the sin that it is enthralled with. And so he asks that question of the people he meets. Do you know about Jesus? And this brings us into James chapter 2 today. Right here, if you open your Bibles up to James chapter 2, most of them will probably say there at the beginning, the sin of partiality. That just is a fancy word for saying the sin of making distinctions, of discriminating for no reason, of separating people according to whatever standards you want to have. And James confronts the church that he is writing to. One of the things that I didn't mention last week about why I love this letter of St. James is, this is probably the first letter of the New Testament that was ever written. St. James and St. Paul are tied for that, with St. James, this letter that bears his name, and St. Paul with First Thessalonians. We're not sure which one of those came first. But they're very close together with James almost nudging Paul out in some for some scholars, just simply because James is the bishop of Jerusalem. By this point in 41, 43 AD, he is in charge of the church in Jerusalem. And they have been dispersed because of the persecutions. And he is writing a letter to the diaspora of Christians around Jerusalem throughout Judea with this letter. And he is letting them know that he is a servant of God, that he is looking after them to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He says in chapter 1, that is to all the Christians who have been scattered throughout Judea and Samaria because of the persecutions in Jerusalem in that area. And he writes to them, but he's heard and seen something happening in these churches that he wants to confront. He's already begun confronting it in the previous chapter with the teaching about hearing versus doing, that we have to do the word, we have to act on what we have heard. And so here he brings it down And gives a particular example of how the church is sinning and how the church throughout the ages has continued to sin in various ways with this one issue. He says in verse one, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here in this first verse, he is confronting them with a particular sin that they're dealing with that flows out of being hearers but not doers of the word. This particular sin is especially egregious because they have faith in Jesus and Jesus has made no distinctions. He saves all equally that come to him in faith. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. He does not distinguish between different kinds of men. For all our sinners before him all are equal before him all our need are in need of salvation and redemption and so our Lord Jesus the Lord of glory echoing back to Psalm 110 I think that Psalm that is quoted more than any other Psalm in all the New Testament who is this Lord of glory who is this Lord of glory and James gives us that answer our Lord Jesus that we trust and he gives An example about this differentiation that is occurring here in the church. He points out that if a man that looks rich comes in, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, paying attention to that rich man and giving him a good seat and ignoring the poor man or shoving him off to the side or making him sit down at your feet is making a distinction. Now, neither of these men probably would have been Christians coming into the assembly They're seekers. They're people who are curious about what these Christians are doing. And so you have someone who's rich and someone who's poor coming in to hear about this man, Jesus. And the church has too quickly paid attention to that rich man and put him in a place of honor. But the poor man, he shoves off to the side or makes him sit on the ground where no one will notice him. The Lord of glory is the only one who can make distinctions. But when we do that, we are doing that which we are not commanded to do. We become judges with evil thoughts. We are basing our understanding of someone's life on their outward look. We are not able to know the heart of man the way that the Father does. The way that Jesus does. But we fill ourselves with evil thoughts as we create distinctions and differentiations between people. And he reminds them that God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And he has promised that he has promised to those who love him. Now it's not every poor man that the Lord blesses. But the ones he has given faith to are the ones who come into his kingdom. He has chosen them to receive that perfect faith. That trustful faith. That faith that drives them nearer to himself. For after all, all of us who have faith have been chosen by God, but how do we respond to that choice? So often in scripture, we see that it is the poor that are commended for their faith because they respond because they have nothing in this world to distract them so often. They're living day by day just on scraps in some cases. And so what do they have to cling to in this world? And when they hear of Jesus, they turn in faith. The faith overwhelms them and they respond. Whereas those who are well-off, those who are rich are more capable of looking back on themselves and saying, well, I can take care of myself. It's like the rich man who had an overwhelming harvest, and he tore down all of his barns and built new ones and says to my soul, now I can rest because I have an abundance of wealth. But in that parable, Jesus says, the angel came and he died. And he died without faith because he trusted in his own actions instead of trusting in the God who provided that grain, who provided that wealth. He was blinded by his wealth, and that is what happens so easily for each of us. As we move up in the world, we come to think of our own abilities as being that which has lifted us up so high, as opposed to it being God who has blessed us in faith and guided us to a better place than where we started. But here the church differentiates, and it is a sin To do that is a sin to separate the people of God, to separate the people who are coming to hear about God based on their outward looks. We sin and dishonor the poor when we treat them differently from the rich, when we treat them and dishonor them, when we mistreat them and act as though they are lesser than us and refuse to help them. Paul or St. James continues. To point out that the rich are the ones that we dishonor. Or the rich are the ones who will oppress the people of God. The rich are the ones who are dragging them into court. The rich are the ones who are dishonoring them. And yet, they still tend toward showing them favor when they come into the church. As opposed to making the point that all are equal. All are in the same place. All are in need of salvation. Period. Whether rich or poor, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are in need of the saving words of Jesus. They are in need of the saving work of Jesus, to hear about him. And so, St. James says, if you will really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, then you have committed sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. You might think that you're doing well, but if there's any partiality in you, any differentiation between people, between things, between what is happening, then you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. To break one point of the law is to break all of the law. There's one commentary I was reading pointed out. It's like the law is a large sheet of glass What happens if you break that glass it shatters? It's not just like one little piece of the glass will break off But if you hit it with anything that whole glass will shatter I remember one of my friends in high school got a shard of glass in his foot because he decided to kick a big plate glass and the whole thing just disintegrated Because that's what glass does and that's how the law is To break one point is to break all of it. And so thus, if we have even broken one law, committed one sin, we have broken the whole of the law. It's all of one piece. It all goes together. And so the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or I should say, the scripture is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the summation of the entirety of God's law. Loving others. Showing them mercy, showing them grace, showing them compassion. And that is what the Lord has done for us. And of course, with St. James saying the royal law here in chapter 2, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, again, as I said last week, law is a big, broad word. He's not using it in this super narrow definition of just referring to the moral law of the Ten Commandments, but I think he's using a broad meaning to encompass the whole of Scripture. Especially the gospel itself being a part and parcel of that. The word and the promise. The law and promise. And so he's referring back to that perfect law of chapter 1 that we heard about last week. Which then jumps back further in chapter 1 to the word of truth that has brought us forth. And so you have the word of truth. You have the perfect law. The law of liberty. The royal law. All of these are describing the gospel and the change that it brings to us. That we are enabled to do what the law has told us to do. The law that has convicted us and condemned us in and of ourselves. But through the gospel, that law becomes a way of life. It becomes a path that we can walk upon. The gospel brings us salvation and a renewal of our hearts and our minds, faith and repentance. And thus drives us into a new kind of life. And drives us nearer to Jesus. It drives us nearer to the Father. It drives us to desire to walk before the Lord in the ways that He has set before us. And so what does this have to do with the rich and the poor? James is making the point of bringing all this together to point out that to show partiality is to deny what Jesus has done. For Jesus to die for the sins of the world means that all of the world are sinners. We're equally condemned by the very sin that is in us And the very sins that we commit. But with the reality of Jesus' death on the cross for those sins, that death brings about those sins' forgiveness. Thus all receive forgiveness through faith in the work of Jesus. All people, rich and poor together, are equally sinners at the foot of the cross and are foundationally in the exact same place in need of redemption and forgiveness. And so to show partiality to one or the other, is to deny the full work of Jesus for humanity. We're equal as sinners before God, and we're even more so equal before God in our worship. And thus, in our worship, we should especially be mingling together and be merging together as one people with no distinctions amongst us. We're coming based on forgiveness. The foundation is forgiveness that we have trusted in that has been bestowed on us through baptism. And we've been made one body in those things, here on earth. And so differentiations like that in the church are denying the fundamental reality that we are equally sinners and yet in Jesus equally righteous. We all are on one equal footing before God and that is the point he is making. To show partiality is to commit sin because we're distinguishing, we're separating people, we're acting as though the work of Jesus does not equally apply to these people, and that's why he brings up that the break one part of the law is to break all of it, to be guilty of all of it. We cannot resist that reality that we are all guilty, as he says in verse eleven. Do not the one who said, "Do not commit adultery," also said, "Do not murder." So if you commit, if you haven't committed adultery, but you have murdered, you're a transgressor. I love that James just went full bore right there. He went from what would seem like the smaller thing. You haven't done this smaller thing, but you did this huge thing of killing someone. You, you've broken all of it, period. My brain would have flipped that around and said, the law says don't kill, and it says don't commit adultery. Well, if you've killed someone but committed adultery, you've broken all of it. Both of those are equally true. All of the law is broken with any type of sin. Because any sin says, I'm in charge and God isn't. We become sinners in our thoughts, and our deeds, and our hearts, and our minds. By choosing to ignore the word of God. By choosing to disobey the law and the word that God has set before us. For that is how we make proper distinctions for ourselves. As God is the one who has told us how to live. And so the distinctions we make is, I'm a sinner. God is righteous and holy. I'm going to follow God and deny myself. And in denying myself, I will then reach out to others and tell them of who this God is that has died for our sins through Jesus. I will tell them of the work that Jesus has done for us. Because we are all equally sinners and equally in need of salvation. The law reflects God's perfect will. It reflects God's perfect unified will that he reveals in the Ten Commandments that begins with... You shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, God is the only God that can be worshipped. And ends with, do not covet. Do not desire that which your neighbor has and hate him for it. Both of those are heart issues. Isn't it beautiful how the Ten Commandments, as we so often think about them being so focused on our outward actions, begin and end with heart issues of who do you worship and how do you treat your neighbor from your heart and so all the commandments are affected by the first and the last commandment all of those commandments the breaking of them there is an issue with the beginning and the end of the commandments in your own heart and they tell us how to understand the rest of the commandments that's why jesus can then talk about lusting talk about hatred And talk about a whole host of other heart issues as being the equivalent of committing adultery or murder or any of the other commandments. Because to break it in your heart is to break the spirit of what that law is doing. And so you become a transgressor. You become a sinner to break one piece of the law is to break all of it. And bringing it back to our words in verse 12, James says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Act like those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, the law that will be merciful to you, the law that says Jesus has died for your sins, and you have been redeemed and changed by the Spirit coming to dwell within you. You have been given compassion and mercy. So speak and so act as one who has been given forgiveness and mercy. Don't be the unforgiving servant. Don't be the servant who's forgiven a hundred billion trillion dollars and then goes out and gets into a fight and throws his friend in jail over 20 bucks. Because what happened to that unforgiving servant? The king took him and threw him back in prison and said he won't get out until he's repaid everything now. Because he did not live as one under mercy. He did not show mercy to another, though I showed him great mercy. So judgment will come. And it will be without mercy to us who have shown no mercy. To us who have said we received forgiveness, that we received mercy, but have not so acted, we will not receive mercy. For to receive God's mercy is to be changed, and we are called into that change always, To continue walking that path of change because of the mercy and the forgiveness and the compassion and the grace of God is in us and with us. And from here, James launches into probably what he is most famous for. That faith without works is dead, he says. Wait, isn't the entire Protestant Reformation about the fact that it's not by works that we are saved, but faith alone? It is because... At that time, there was so much emphasis that works were the way of salvation, that faith was turned into an intellectual concept, an intellectual construct. And you had to have works ultimately to gain the grace needed for salvation. After you began that path, you had to do the good works to get the grace to achieve justification at the end. And so Luther and all the other reformers came barreling in to say it's faith alone that saves you. Faith is not mere intellectual trust, but is a whole heart trust. It is a whole heart love of the Father in Jesus. It stakes everything of who you are on Jesus. And that kind of faith, Luther would say, is always followed by works, which is exactly what James is saying here today. As wonderful (laughs) as Luther is, this is one of the places where he made a mistake with the book of James. He called it the epistle of straw at one point in his ministry. I've even read that he took the epistle of James and put it as an appendix in one of his Bibles because he so hated the book of James because it literally says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith alone without works is dead, James says. And in the controversies, the Roman Catholic Church used that to hammer back on Luther. Be like, right here it says faith alone in the Bible and it says faith alone can't save you. And that frustrated him so much. Later on, he got over that frustration at the book of James. He got rid of that statement about the epistle of James being straw. He restored it back to its proper place in his Bible. But forever, history remembers that he did those things against the book of James and mock him for it. But in the context, the fight he was waging, this book was being abused in that fight. It was being treated as though the kind of faith that James is talking about here is that heartfelt trust. That affection for the Father that flows out of the work of salvation that he has accomplished in that renewal. At that time, that use of faith was being applied to what James is saying here. But I think James has a different thing in mind with faith here. He's talking about just that surface level intellectual faith. Because a little bit there down in verse 19 he'll say, well, even the demons believe and shudder. They have knowledge that God exists and they shudder. And so I think James is focused here on talking about that kind of faith that says I have faith, that says it hears the word, but then never acts on the word, that never responds to the word, that never lets the word penetrate down into the heart and become implanted to grow up in salvation. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Faith that doesn't change you is no faith at all, ultimately. Faith that doesn't change you and change your behavior will wither up and die because those behaviors, those sins, will kill that faith, ultimately. The cares of the world will spring up and strangle it and cause it to die. The heat of the sun will come out and burn the plants up. Because our roots don't go down deep enough. Can that faith save him that doesn't have works? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food and you say go in peace and be warmed without giving them anything, what good is that? What good is it to tell people, well, go be warm and have a full belly if you don't actually give them anything to keep them warm and to fill their belly? And to then turn around and say, well, I believe in Jesus, so it's okay. That belief has not penetrated deep down within you, James says. Because for true faith to penetrate deep down in you is to change you and to bring forth good works and good deeds from the Father. He says in verse 18, Well, someone will say, You have faith and I have works. And James says, Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Our actions, our behaviors, our obediences, are expressions of that heartfelt trust and love of the Father, of that faith that we have deep down within us. And that is what all of this chapter is about. The sin of partiality is an issue of faith not penetrating deep down to recognize the full weight of your sinfulness and the full weight of God's redemption that changes you into a new creation. And so faith that doesn't penetrate deep down is not going to change you. Your actions, your words, your behaviors reveal the faith that is within. Another example from Luther because I'm on a Luther kick right now. All the prayers of the monks in all the monasteries of the world are useless and lacking in love compared to the loving care of the nursemaid changing the diaper of the baby. He's being a bit extreme, but the point being that that nursemaid is doing a good work that is helpful immediately to someone else and is showing the care and the love and affection that God shows to each and every one of us to that little child. Whereas in that case, in his time, those monks he's talking about are avoiding helping anyone. They're sheltering themselves and hiding from the work that is all around them. It wasn't wrong that they were praying, but it was wrong that they then weren't going out and responding to the call of the gospel to help others know and to reveal that faith they had by their actions toward others. And so our faith is put on display by the works that we do, our actions in this world. Our love of the Father is revealed to the rest of the world, just as my love for Rachel is revealed in the way I act toward her. If I mistreat my wife, I don't love her, apparently. St. Paul said that much in his epistle to the Ephesians. Likewise, for our faith in God, to not have works is to not have faith, because they go together. The works aren't saving you, but the trust is. The faith is what saves, is what lays hold of that redemption in Jesus. And that redemption in Jesus is going to be revealed in everything that we do and our actions. And so faith that does not go forward in works is no faith at all at the end of the day. It is a faith that will shrivel up and die because sin will overtake it once more. But a faith that calls sin, sin and repents and turns from it is a faith that is bringing the redemption of God into one's life. And So it starts with your own heart and asking yourself, am I a sinner in need of God's salvation? Reveal it to me, O Lord, that I might walk this path of faith and be changed evermore to become like Jesus, to become one whose faith is always shown by my works. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.